Dad. Dad was wonderful. Not all dads are great. They do have kinks in their armor. But this dad was more than wonderful. This dad had the means and the ability to bless his family beyond anything anyone could even imagine. He would provide for their every need and protect them from every enemy and lead them on life's journey just at the right pace and direction. Everyone would look at this family and wish, well, they would wish that they were part of it. The dad's love for his kids was undeniable and his wisdom was legendary. This dad was amazing. This dad only asked one thing of his kids. Loyalty. They would need to obey his word and trust his plan. So following someone who is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving should be easy. Right? Wrong. Wrong. You know, most of you know by now, this is the story about God and about us. The redeemed, the adopted, have a good, good father. God loved the world and paid the debt for our rebellion so all could be redeemed and enjoy a relationship with this good, good father. As hard as it is to believe, we all struggle with loyalty to God. It all started in a garden. When God had Adam and Eve and said, hey, paradise, it's yours. You can enjoy this place. It is unbelievable. And we get to have communication and a relationship. But but there's one thing, just one thing. Don't eat the fruit from one tree. (laughs) You know what happened. That one tree had pretty good fruit. And it looked pretty luscious and good and tasty. And they ate And their disobedience changed everything. This pattern continues through all of history. Well, some folks do listen to God. And and they do that for a bit. But then they run. And then they crash. And then they crowd for help. Our Older Testament tells the story of God before the Savior's arrival. Page after page, we read about God's covenant love and his lack of loyalty by his family. There are some bright spots, times where God's people listened and flourished. I hope to focus on one of those times this morning. But before we do, let me pray. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your love for us. We are grateful, God, that we have an opportunity 
to enter a relationship with you through our faith, by your grace. And when we do, our world changes. We're new creations. And we have an opportunity to live abundantly and we'll be with you for eternity. Meanwhile, though, God, we're we're living in this world and this world seems confusing. This world seems harsh. This world seems unfair. Lord, we look at some of the tremendous times where, where weather just raises havoc and we wonder why. And where men are fighting against one another and we wonder why. We wonder about the injustice and we ask you for help. Father, we pray for this church, your church. We pray, dear God, for the church, churches all over our world, proclaiming your word and being salt and light in their communities. I think especially today of redemption and Emmanuel and Casa. These are all churches in our neighborhood, all churches that are Proclaiming your word faithfully. Strengthen those flocks, Father. We pray for our workers downstairs, those who are proclaiming your word, who are working with children, who are holding babies. We ask you, dear God, that you would empower them and strengthen them as we partner together with parents. They rear their children, helping them love you and see you and make wise choices. God, I pray for this message. I pray, God, that that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move in an undeniable way and that you would receive honor and glory. We pray, Father, that we would leave today encouraged and strengthened for the task that you have called each one of us to. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles. That's, that's in the Old Testament. That might take you a little while to, to figure out where that is. You can always look in your index Or you can uh, just go to your flat screen and punch that in. But 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and I'm going to start reading at verse 14. This actually is a, a sad passage. It's a passage where each one of us are going to be transported into history way back in the history, where God faithfully gave and loved and encouraged the children of Israel. But God had his limits. Let me read 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting at verse 14. Likewise, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful 
They followed all the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. By this time in Israel's history, so many of you know there were 12 tribes. Ten of them already had been punished. In the year 722, they were destroyed and scattered. There were two, well, shall we say, other tribes, and we refer to them as Judah. And they were perhaps just a little bit more godly, and not so much. But God judged Judah, and that's what we just read. And there were three deportations until finally in 586... All the able-bodied men and women and children were now spending time in Babylon. Oh, they had to be miserable. Put yourself in that situation. Your homeland destroyed. You watching it right before you, but then taken as slaves or exiles. But there was hope. Jeremiah was a prophet then, and Jeremiah spoke these words to Israel to encourage them. Yes, they were in Babylon. Yes, they were miserable, but but God is faithful. In spite of their disobedience, God is faithful. In Jeremiah chapter 29, starting at verse 10, this is what Jeremiah tells them. This is what the Lord says. You, children of Israel, you Jews, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days, once you come back, when you pray, I will listen. 
If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. As you can tell by the cover of your bulletin, we're going to dig into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah follow the book of 2 Chronicles, at least chronologically, and they tell the story of God's gracious hand. As the children of Israel come back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple, and they establish a community, and they rebuild the walls. Now, in all of your Bibles, these are two books. There's Ezra and there's Nehemiah. Technically, that was done a few hundred years ago. This, at least in the Hebrew Bible, would just be one book. It would just be one book. And this one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, focused on three leaders. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel comes back and rebuilds the temple. Ezra comes back and rebuilds community. Nehemiah is the leader that comes back and rebuilds the wall. Now, there's so much to learn about God and about being God's people in this text. So some of it I'm going to, some of it I'm going to give a summary. Others we're going to read verses. But I'm going to start with a summary. In Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, tells the story of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. Let me summarize these six chapters for you. We find out as we open up the book of Ezra, right in the first chapter, that God moved the pagan king Cyrus. That God literally moved his heart and put on Cyrus's heart, hey, why don't you send the Jews back to Jerusalem and let them build the temple or rebuild the temple? So Jewish leaders, which included priests and Levites, and about 42,000 Jews leave Babylon, return to Jerusalem, and start to rebuild the temple. As they begin to rebuild the temple, there's some opposition. Some folks didn't like it. But God again moves, and by this time, it's King Darius. And he moves in King Darius, and King Darius continues to step in. And King Darius, this pagan king, protects the Jews as they continue their goal of making a temple or or rebuilding the temple. The scriptures tell us that the temple took about 20 years to rebuild. Let's jump ahead to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7 through Ezra 10 tells the story of Ezra. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 7. And I'm going to read some highlights. Give you some perspective of who Ezra was and why he was in Jerusalem. Right in verse 1, many years later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. This Ezra, in verse 6, 
was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king, this pagan king, this king that was not a God follower, but a king that God moved, gave him everything he asked for. Because, and this term is going to be all the way through. This is so cool. Because the gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in, the, in August of that year. And, and then over to verse 9. For the gracious hand of God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. God's gracious hand was on him because... He was determined to study God's word and then to teach God's word. Artaxerxes writes a letter to Ezra a little bit later, and in verse 12, uh, the scriptures say this, from Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. And the letter goes on, but it jumped to verse 25. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who doesn't know it. So unusual. This guy didn't believe in God. This guy didn't believe in God's word. But, but somehow he saw in Ezra God blessing him. Saying, hey, this is good. I want you to teach the law. I want you to, to have officials that obey the law. And this is his response in verse 27. Praise the Lord, the God of our ancestors who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And praise him, God, for demonstrating such unfailing love to me, for honoring me before the king, his counsel, and all of his mighty nobles. And this is what he writes. I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra was to teach the law and establish community. Then in chapter 8, it talks about all the different people, thousands of people that came back with Ezra in this kind of second wave back to Jerusalem. But in chapter 9, Ezra hears of Israel's rebellion. Now, if I could put this a little bit into context, the temple was rebuilt about 60 years before. For 60 years, they had been worshiping God. For 60 years, they had been opening up God's word. For 60 years, they were starting this journey back from this slavery to establishing what a normal life would be. That's what would happen. So about 60 years later, Ezra comes back. 
Ezra brings another group. Ezra's going to establish community, help them understand God's laws, establish godly leaders. He gets to Jerusalem, and in chapter 9, he can't believe what he hears. Sixty short years. The Jews had strayed. They had taken up detestable practices of what I would call the ites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. All these people that God told them when they came into the promised land that they were an abomination to God. They worshiped idols. Their behavior was crude. But the Jews, instead of, well, reflecting God, begin to mold and meld into this group of people. And the scriptures even tell us in chapter 9 that they married foreign women. Now, honestly, if you just read that, you go like, really? Okay, I'm Swedish, so if I marry a Bohemian, you know, I mean, that's foreign, right? I mean... Whole different culture, whole different thing. And, and no, really what the abomination was is that the children of Israel, the Jews, decided that they didn't have to listen to God, that they could marry whomever they wanted. And God warned them about that because when you marry someone, you bring their culture in and their gods in. And if they don't love the Lord your God, what's going to happen? Your heart's going to turn away. So it was a big deal. Maybe we could even say they married non-God fearers. Now, Ezra at this time, and this is interesting, all right, he was shocked and appalled. Those are the words the scriptures say. He comes in, he hears and sees all the people disobeying, the marriages that are being consummated are, is in a, a perfect rebellion against God himself. So in chapter 9, starting at verse 3, Ezra 9, 3. When I heard this, this is Ezra talking, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled a hair from my head and beard, and sat down utterly shocked. Then all those who trembled at the word of God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up where I, was, where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees, lifted my hands up to the Lord, and I prayed. He was so upset that these Jews had drifted. Some of us might say, oh, you're a goody two-shoes. What's a, come on, you don't understand. No. Remember, Ezra is one that studied God's word. Ezra is one that walked with God. Ezra knew God very well. And his heart was broken that the Jews decided not to listen to the good, good father. 
So he prays. And, and this is an unbelievable prayer. But I'm going to start in verse 6. Listen to his heart. Oh my God, Ezra says, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of pagan kings of the land. We have been killed and captured and robbed and disgraced, just as we are today. But now we've been given a brief moment of grace, for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He's given us security of this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from his slavery, for we were slaves. But in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our oh, our God, what can we say after all this? For once again, we have abandoned your commands. Your servants, the prophets, warned us when they said, the land you're entering to possess is totally defiled by de- detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruptions. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as their wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces. And you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. And it goes on a little bit further, but in chapter 10, verse 1, let's see how Ezra responds. Chapter 10, verse 1. Well, Ezra prayed. He's pouring his heart out here. He made this confession. He's weeping. He's lying face down in the ground in front of the temple of God. A very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. Folks, many of us just don't see sin the way Ezra did or even the way God Season. He, he couldn't believe they didn't listen to the good, good father. But this repentance was heartfelt. This repentance involved weeping. This repentance, bowing, falling down your face, asking for God's mercy. And then verse 11 says, so now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women or wives. Now, we're not going to read all the details of the end, but the ending is really an odd ending. 
If you continue to read in chapter 10 what happens, the leaders at Israel spend the next four months meeting with men who married foreign or ungodly women. I said, you've got to confess this is sin. You've got to make it right. And then the story ends. But as I said, even though we go into a new book, this is really just one book. The story of Nehemiah begins about 12 years later. And, and again, I, I'm not trying to be some timeline freak here. But I think the timeline is really important for us to understand. So again, there's repentance. Okay, they're dealing with the sin. Okay, they're back obeying God. They're starting to walk with God. Nehemiah shows up about 12 years later. Now, Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. He hears a report and is moved. For those who don't know a lot about history, a cupbearer is probably the most trusted out of all of the king's servants. Uh, His job, Nehemiah's job, was to drink the wine and eat the food before the king would. And if Nehemiah didn't drop dead, it was a good thing. So, I mean, great job. You get the best food in the world, but who knows if this bite is the last one you have, you know? But he trusted him. He trusted him. So this is, he he was high in the court. Now, let me read for you. Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is the report. Nehemiah was Jewish. Some folks came back. They said to me, they said to Nehemiah, things are not going well for those who return to the providence of Judah. They are in great danger and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And listen to his reaction. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Wow. This is, I mean, this news doesn't seem so bad, does it? But to Nehemiah, he understood the prophecies. He understood who God was, and he understood what the city of David, Jerusalem, meant. This was the place where the temple stood and where God dwells. It is now unprotected. It looks terrible. And Nehemiah apparently thought after all these years, that wall should have been built. After all, the temple now had been restored 70 years before. Ezra's uh, revival had happened 12 years before. You would think the people would have got around to this. The walls were important to an ancient city. This was God's city, a place God had chosen for his name to be honored. Nehemiah saw this as an affront to the Almighty God. 
So Nehemiah closes. He prays after he goes down and closes his prayer in in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He says this, The people praying to God, You rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants, God. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me, put in his heart to be kind, to me so he is upset he fell down on his knees he started praying he reminded God that we the Jews were his servants and and he had a plan he was going to go to the king make the king favorable I sense it was God's plan simply as we hear it because Only God could get glory if the plan were to happen. So in chapter 2, the scriptures tell us that Nehemiah was doing his job. He was drinking the wine. He was eating the food. But in the king's presence, he was sad. You get the idea that he never, ever, ever was down or depressed in the king's presence before. I don't know if he had a frown on his face. I don't know if he was looking down. I don't, you know. But the king noticed. And the king asked, hey, what can I do to help you? At that moment, Nehemiah did have a plan. But the scriptures tell us that he prayed a quick prayer. And, And the quick prayer probably was, help help. I'm going to talk, God, but you, you got to do the work because otherwise I'm a dead duck. Help. And so he gave a response, and it probably would blow you away, asking a king for all this. But he said, hey, king, send me back to Judah. I want to rebuild the wall, and I'd like you to supply all the material." Oh, and the king responded, chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the king granted those requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, but he didn't tell anyone of the plans that God had put in his heart. He meets with the leaders. He gathered all of Israel's leaders in Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 17, this is his sales pitch. But now I said to them, these leaders, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Verse 18, then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation. They replied all at once, yes, (laughs) this is amazing. I can't believe it. Let's rebuild the wall. So they began their good work. Wow. Chapter 3 is so cool. And again, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read this, but chapter 3 is so cool. So they decide to rebuild the wall, and everybody living in Jerusalem is going to lend a hand. 
And what's so unique about chapter 3 is that most of the people listed are not masons and carpenters and contractors. In the scriptures, they list goldsmiths, perfume makers, Levites, priests, merchants, and daughters. And now, don't get mad at me here. I, I, I really do know that women can do construction, all right? But this was absolutely unheard of. For one thing, what does a perfume maker know about building a wall? They know about perfume, you know? Like, I, I don't know, you make perfume. I'm pretty sure perfume makers don't have calluses on their hands. Yeah, you know, no offense. Is there a perfume maker here? You know, I'm not really trying to offend you, but, but physical labor probably wasn't there. And, and what was so cool about this is that everybody jumped in, everybody. But then chapter four, opposition, some progress, prayer, complaining, but hope. Let me read some things. What happened in chapter 4? All right. There was a group of people, they found out they were rebuilding the wall, and they didn't want that to happen. So they started mocking all of these workers, perfume makers and, and everybody else. And Nehemiah said this in verse 4, Then I prayed, I said, hear us, O Lord, we are being mocked. Well, the progress happened in verse 6. At last the wall was completed to half of its height around the entire city for the people that worked with enthusiasm. And, And that's what often happens, right? You have a project, you get cooking on it, and you get about halfway through. You look at it and say, oh, this is sweet. Well, the problem was is that the opposition got stronger. And they made plans in verse 8 to come and fight against Jerusalem. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. So they're getting, well, people from the outside trying to destroy him. Then people from the inside were saying, hey, I'm tired You know, this worked really well, especially if you're a perfume maker. You know, you're good for a half a wall, you know. But you really want to get back doing what you're supposed to be doing and and so on and so forth. And so the people complain, hey, there's too much rubbish around. Uh, My hands are tired and so on and so forth. Well, the enemy started getting a little bit stronger And so Nehemiah needed to have a different plan. In verse 13, he placed armed guards all around. In verse 14, it says, I looked over the situation. I called everybody together. It looks scary. I know that these... Our enemy doesn't want us to finish. But in verse 13, it says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And the scriptures tell us from that time on, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they moved forward. It was so cool. 52 days after they started it. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. 
On October 2nd, the wall was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated simply because they couldn't have done it by themselves. They knew God had to help them. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, here's some things that happened. Because once the wall was completed, some amazing things happened. On October 8th, six days later, Ezra was asked to read the word. They've been working hard. Hey, everybody come back. Let's have Ezra read the Bible to us. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. They invited everybody back. And from early morning until noon, they stood as Ezra read God's word. Remember, they had no internet. They had no Bibles. There were very few scrolls around. So the people were listening to God's word. It followed up at this time after hours of listening to God's word. Followed up by worship. And then, because not everybody totally understood, the Bible says that Levites gathered people together and explained what Ezra was reading. Then on October 9th, one day later, in Acts chapter, excuse me, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1, on October 3rd, I'm sorry, Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Jumped one thing. Verse 13. On October 9th, the family leaders of all the people together with the priests and the Levites met with Ezra, the scribe, to go over the law in greater detail. So Ezra started off reading to everybody. For hours, and then Levites explained it. The very next day, Ezra got along and met with the family heads, met with the religious leaders, and said, hey, let's dig in a little more. We need to study God's word. And what you're going to find out, they found out that they were not obedient to God completely. They noticed an area of disobedience, and they responded. Notice the pattern here. Teaching. Follow up, digging deeper. Then a few weeks later, in chapter 9, verse 1, on October 31st, two weeks, the people returned again, but they had fasted already. They came in sackcloth. They listened to the word. Listen to what happened here. 
On October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law their God was read to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sin and worshiped the Lord. The scriptures tell us there was corporate confession after this. There was focusing on God's grace. And the people, even as you continue to read, they responded in writing They made vows and promises and signed it. As each one of us know, when you sign something, it seems to make the paper or the deal more official. These folks wanted God to know that they were going to obey him. Notice the pattern. They come prepared. The word is shared They worship, they confess, and they respond. (laughs) This is kind of a cool story. And it would be nice. It would be nice if the book ended right here. But it doesn't. There's a chapter 13. And it records for us because... What, what Nehemiah does after all this amazing things happen, he leaves. He goes back with the king. But he returns 12 years later. And the Bible tells us Nehemiah was outraged. After all this, the signing, the vows, the promises, the repentance, the people all responding. God doing an amazing work in their midst. He came back 12 years later. The temple was defiled, Levites were neglected, Sabbath was violated, and men started marrying foreign women again. Nehemiah ends in a very odd way. Chapter 13, verse 30. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making sure everyone knew his work. I just have a few moments to wrap up. There was a lot in there. But there are so many lessons here. What got me so excited is that God moved pagan kings. We sometimes don't think that God has authority or that God isn't sovereign, but God is sovereign. God used leaders to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the community, to rebuild the wall. But here's the big lesson, is that the study of God's word brings about repentance and life change. You see, each section started with hope, but actually each section ended with discouragement. You see, it doesn't take long for anyone to fall away from God. Anyone in this room or anyone else. We all go through cycles. And there are times that we take God's word less serious. We perhaps put it aside. 
Perhaps we're too busy. Or perhaps we just read it perfunctory. Hey, I I did my devotions. Instead of opening up that book, asking God to reveal blind spots, to show you where you need to grow, to encourage your heart, to follow him with all of your heart. So my question is this. Where are you at with God today? I I don't know what cycle you're in. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've walked with God for a long time, but life's got hectic. Maybe the Word hasn't been a priority in your life. Maybe you haven't repented in a long time of anything. I think this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, have reminded us that it doesn't take long for us to drift. We need to make God's word a priority. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that you've given each one of us. Lord, there's a lot of history here. These people, well, they learned some hard lessons. You sent prophet after prophet. You spoke words of life to them and they chose not to listen and they ended up in 70 years of captivity. By your grace, you bring them back. By your grace, they respond. By your grace, there's life. And then quickly they forget. And you send another messenger. And they respond again because you are gracious. And there is life. But then they drift and disobey. God, we can be pretty judgmental. But that's so much our cycle, our pattern. Would we learn, God, would we learn how important your word is? Would we learn that your word convicts us and we need to move on it and your word strengthens us and your word empowers us? Would we make your word a priority in our life? Because you are a good, good father. You are a good father that desires us to live abundantly in relationship with you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and